and welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger for Tuesday, February the 13th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story from the Mason City Globe Gazette. It's entitled, Library Eyes Legislation. Bill Transfers Oversight, Property of Library Boards to Cities. It's written by Alexander Schmidt of the Globe Gazette. The Mason City Public Library is advocating against a legislative proposal that would see state funding for libraries in Iowa brought under more local control, joining the Iowa Library Association in opposing the bill. Proposed by Senator Jesse Green, a Republican from Harcourt, SSB 3131 has been referred to the Committee on Local Government and was retooled in the House as HSB 678, which would give city councils more control over the composition of library boards and how libraries are funded. Current law requires each city and county to levy a tax of at least 6.75 cents per $1,000 of assessed value on taxable property or monetary equivalent for the purpose of supporting the public library. The library is subsidized by a special levy, first approved in 1990, that generates 14 cents of funding per $1,000 of assessed valuation used for the purchase of library materials. Mary Mark Walter, Mason City Public Library Director, said this mandate from the voters indicates the community wants to see the library flourish and has helped it do so. Green's legislation would change the language of shall to may, giving the levy power to the city council, and would allow a city council to alter the composition, manner of selection, or chain charge of a library board by ordinance. In Iowa, mayors appoint library board members and city councils have to approve those selections, but voters still have the ultimate say on whether to alter or dismantle library boards in their communities. A new law, which will go into effect this July despite vocal opposition from the ILA and Mason City Public Library, capped the city's abilities to levy individually for the library, combining them into a single levy. The Mason City Council in February 2023 approved maximum property tax dollars for the affected tax levies for fiscal year 2024 to not exceed $10.94, an increase of 1.22% from the maximum property tax dollars requested for fiscal year 2023. The new law caps the city's levy rates at $8.10 per $1,000, and Mark Walter said she knows the red tape will eventually force the city to prioritize funding for services like street repair, emergency management, and other costs. Next year, we'll only have 75% available. The years after that, we'll have 50% and then 25%, and it's gone, said Mark Walter. Our cities are not prepared, nor will they be additionally resourced to tackle the work of over 500 public library boards around the state, wrote Sam Helmick, president of Iowa Library Association, in an op-ed for the Daily Iowan on February the 4th. As they say in chess, Helmick added, we are at end game. If SSB 3131 passes, Iowa libraries will close. Iowa communities are not prepared for the fallout. Those who register or vote in favor of this new of this bill know this is tragic reality. Public libraries are essential community hubs for many Iowans, said Mark Walter. Without public libraries, many Iowans would not have access to information, books, internet service, printing, faxing, 
tax forms, the ability to apply for jobs, and special programs and activities for all ages. If Mason City did not have a library levy and a library board, said Mark Walter, it could not operate as the vibrant community hub that it is. The Mason City Public Library annual statistics strongly support this statement. The Mason City Public Library offers over 200,000 services units to the public each year. Please do not deprive Iowans of access to that information and services that would otherwise not be available to them. Mason City Library Board member Jennifer Dorsey Lee said, Libraries are essential community resources that play a crucial role in fostering education, intellectual growth, and community engagement. The strength of our libraries lies in the local governance provided by dedicated library boards whose members understand the unique needs and aspirations of their communities. Stripping library boards of their powers, as proposed in SB, SSB 3131, undermines the democratic principles that guide local decision-making and diminishes the ability of these boards to tailor services to the specific needs of their communities. Representative Sharon Steckman, a Democrat from Mason City, said, I attended the subcommittee meeting for the House bill and did not hear from one person supporting this bill. Not one. All the comments emailed in for this meeting were against. Yet, the two Republicans on the committee voted to move the bill forward to the local government committee. Steckman said she does not support the bill. Emails to Representative Jane Bloomingdale, a Republican from Northwood, and Senator Waylon Brown, a Republican from Osage, inquiring about their position on the bill were not immediately returned. This bill would put an unnecessary burden on city government when they already have a board appointed by the mayor to do that job, Steckman said. The volunteers that serve on the board are from the area and have a vested interest in their local library. State government should leave them alone. Representative Shannon Latham, a Republican from Sheffield, said there was a lot of misinformation about this bill. The goal is not to give the cities control over what books they make available. However, libraries are a part of the city government and should be treated as such, similar to parks and recs departments. Therefore, it makes sense for cities to have a level of authority over personnel decisions, financial oversight, and building construction. This bill is still making its way through the legislative process, added Latham. We are listening to stakeholders, provided they are making a good faith effort to ensure the best bill for the people of Iowa. Public libraries are essential for Iowans, said Caitlin Lauritsen, a supporter of the Mason City Public Library, in public comments while the bill was being considered by the local government committee. They remain one of the few spaces still available to all, regardless of a person's background or economic status. This is in huge part thanks to the hard work of library boards and the funds that, are, that tax levies provide. Moreover, city councils are not equipped to handle this additional responsibility, nor should they have to. It can be left in the hands of the individuals with the training and dedication chosen to be on the library board. Lauritsen concluded, I am vehemently opposed to SSB 3131 and its undermining of library boards and the crucial importance of libraries to all Iowa citizens. The Iowa Library Association is holding weekly online legislative updates at 8 a.m. every Wednesday, and on March 5th, it will hold the Legislative Day at the Capitol Building to lobby and advocate legislation that impacts public libraries. In the other story on the front page of the Gazette today, Mason City Youth Hockey raises funds to fight cancer. 
also written by Alexander Schmidt of the Globe Gazette. In the battle against cancer, Mason City Youth Hockey posted a win Saturday night at Mason City Arena. The organization raised $17,420 for Relay for Life of Cerro Gordo County during its Hockey Fights Cancer fundraiser during junior varsity and varsity games against Dubuque. The Mason City Mohawks ultimately clinched a win against their rival, beating Dubuque 3-1. The Newman and Mason City High School dance teams also helped out with the fundraiser, collecting donations from attendees and providing entertainment during game breaks. Jennifer Hahn and Sheila Lang served as co-chairs of the Hockey Fights Cancer event. Both have sons on the varsity team. The Hockey Fights Cancer Committee is beyond grateful for the support we received for this year's event. Our theme was Together We Are Stronger, and boy was that true this year, said Han. The event's guest of honor was Kyla Severance, a mother of two young participants in the youth hockey programs who last year found herself counted as one of the nearly 2 million Americans diagnosed with cancer in 2023. While receiving treatment, Severance's family counted on the support of their hockey f- other hockey families. Helping out with rides to practice and games meant the world, Severance said. Now in remission, Severance said she, along with her son Cole and daughter Cambry, felt well supported by their hockey family while I was doing active treatment. I know they felt honored, just like I did, to be there to drop the puck. Hockey Fights Cancer was founded in 1998 by the National Hockey League and the Mason City Mohawks began participating in the program nine years ago. Since its inception, the Hockey Fights Cancer program has resulted in donations of more than $42,000 for the Relay for Life in Cerro Gordo County. Mason City Youth Hockey Association was established in 1972 as a 5013C uh, nonprofit organization. Run by volunteers, MCYH provides ice for over 200 North Iowa youth hockey players, 50 adult players in the Mason City Adult Hockey League, and members of the North Iowa Figure Skating Club. MCYH skaters practice and compete at Mason City Arena at South Ridge Mall in Mason City, which is also home to the North American 3A hockey team, Mason City Toros, and North American Hockey League squad, North Iowa Bulls. The donations raised from the MCYH add to the $32 million that Relay for Life contributes nationally to support the cancer programs of local and national cancer research institutes, children's hospitals, player charities, and local charities. Notably, cancer mortality has decreased over the past two decades, with investigators reporting a drop of 4 million deaths from 1991 through 2021. This, according to the American Cancer Society, has been largely attributed to decreases in smoking, earlier disease detection in select cancers, and better treatment options. Cerro Gordo County Department of Public Health also was present at the event, handing out free radon test kits and sharing information about breast and cervical cancer screening options. The 2024 Relay for Life in Cerro Gordo County will be held at 5 p.m. June 14th at City Park in Clear Lake. This week's Iowa Works Weekly Hiring Event takes place today, Tuesday, and the event features from from 12.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Supreme Services, hiring multiple positions, service tech, helpers, secretary. Pay range $20 to $28 depending on experience. For more information, you can contact Iowa Works at area code 641 422 15 
1-800-273-8324. Our next story is entitled Mason City Community Theater to present Stephen King's Misery. It's written by Robin McClelland. In a show that co-director Amy and David Lee call a dysfunctional love story, Mason City Community Theater will present the William Goldman play Misery based on the 1987 Stephen King novel. It is the Lee's first time directing a drama, and the pair are dealing with a number of adult themes. This is a show for adults, said David Lee. There are F-bombs and gore and even a gunshot, but they're all important parts of the story. The Misery cast consists of just three actors. Lacey Schmidt-Monson is Annie Wilkes, a nurse with a penchant for romance novels. Dave Beck is author Paul Sheldon, whose book character whose book character, Misery, is Annie's favorite, and Sheriff Buster is played by Andrew Baldoff. The actors, crew, and directors agree that working on such an intimate production is an advantage. Both Dave and Lee and Lacey came to in with their lines ready, so we've been able to work on the fine-tuning and prop work, David Lee explained. The remarkable special effects are something he's been working on for a while. We started set building in November, and then we have six weeks of rehearsal. Those effects drive the building terror as Annie and Paul spend more time together. It's a prop-heavy production, David Lee said. We have a limited cast and a great number of props. Amy Lee thinks audience members will be sympathetic to the characters, although Annie and Paul's relationship is anything but average. Annie, in particular, has her struggles, but she's also surprisingly easy to like and sympathize with, Amy said. I hope everyone gets scared, said Beck. Misery opens February 15th. Shows are at 7 p.m. February 15th through 18th and February 22nd through 24th. Matinees are at 2 p.m. Sunday, February 18th and 25th. Tickets can be purchased online at mccommunitytheater.com. In other theatrical news, Stebbins Children's Theater presents Stone Soup, also written by Robin McClelland. Stebbins Children's Theater will present Stone Soup on February 15th through 18th, a story of sharing and community. This lively and hilarious production was adapted for stage by Stebbins Children's Theater director Tom Balmer. It is Stebbins's third staging of the classic story. Mason City High School junior Claire Sampson plays the mayor of the village, Briley Kittleson is the farmer, and Henry Hansen brings the part of Michaelis, the soldier, to life. The production of Stone Soup intersects with Mason City High School's 76th annual Follies, meaning the cast and crew are working on a modified rehearsal schedule to allow for high school students to make their mark on the school stage. Kittleson is an Osage High School sophomore with just a single Stebbins production under her belt. We're working hard and I know we'll be ready, she said. Balmer remembers the story of Stone Soup from his childhood. It's a cross-cultural proverb, he said. I had a picture book with the soldiers dressed colorfully that may have been my inspiration. When the soldiers arrive to the village, residents claim poverty, saying they're unable to feed the hungry men. Bit by bit, the villagers add to the pot, eventually cooking up a wholesome and filling meal. Clara Sampson says the story has a message. Sometimes it takes a village to accomplish a task, she said. Stone Soup runs at 7 p.m. February 15th, 16th, and 17th, 4 p.m. February 17th, and 2 p.m. February 18th. Tickets are available at Steben, S-T-E-B-E-N-S-C-T 
www.thebigcityshop.com at the box office or by calling area code 641-424-9802. Now we turn to the opinion page and we've got another view from the New York Daily News entitled Supreme Skepticism Makes Sense. Trump's Colorado ballot ban doesn't stand up to scrutiny given wording of constitution. The U.S. Supreme Court expressed proper doubt toward Colorado's attempt to exclude Donald Trump from its presidential ballot under the 14th Amendment. Trump is indeed an anti-democratic demagogue who sought to overturn the 2020 election before and on January the 6th, but the judgment of whether he engaged in a second civil war is not for a 50 state courts to decide. It could be unanimous to overrule Colorado. Interpreting Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is no simple task. It states, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. Question one is how insurrection or rebellion are defined. Question two is who does the defining and the enforcement. Question three is whether this language, which doesn't even include reference to the presidency itself, applies to that office or only to those beneath it. Question four is, can a state do this or must Congress? Lawyers on both sides disagreed with how exclusion from the ballot would proceed even if the candidate in question were an avowed insurrectionist running for an office clearly listed in the amendment. Colorado's lawyer called it a very easy case. The self-declared enemy of America could be scratched from the ballot by state courts. Trump's lawyer disagreed and wasn't crazy for doing so. Even if the candidate is an, an admitted insurrectionist, said Jonathan Mitchell, the Constitution still allows the candidate to run for office and even win election to office and then see whether the Congress lifts that disability after the election. It's true that the language applies only to holding office, not to running, and it's also true that it explicitly gives Congress the power to remove such disability. That Trump is a former president complicates matters further. Unlike every other president before him, Trump had never before sworn the oath for any other office. And what Trump did, while definitely wrong and quite possibly criminal, may not legally be an insurrection. Special counsel Jack Smith's case against Trump for meddling in the 2020 election is powerful. The prospect of a president-elect Trump or a second-term President Trump being found guilty of undermining the American democratic system is enough to make one's head spin. But state-by-state state removal from the ballot by state courts or having engaged in, for having engaged in insurrection, that dog will not hunt, nor should it. Now we turn to today's obituaries, and first we remit Wayne 
Ranny or Rainy, R-A-N-N-E-Y, age 93, who passed comfortably at home February the 6th, 2024. Throughout his last three days, he and all of his family enjoyed friends and family stopping in. He always loved company. He was able to sit at the table sometimes and listen, eat, drink, and communicate. He knew how much he was loved, and we knew how much he loved us. Family will have a private service. However, family would love friends and family to attend a celebration for Kenneth at his and Joanne's home, 1 to 6 p.m. on Saturday, February the 17th, 2024. Sheckler Colonial Chapel is handling arrangements, and they're located at 114 North Hawkeye Avenue, Nora Springs. They can be reached at 641-749-2210 or at colonialchapels.com. Next, we remember Marlene Karen Kester, age 85, of Marshalltown, who passed away Saturday, February the 3rd, 2024. Her memorial service will be held beginning at 10.30 a.m. on February 17, 2024, at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Marshalltown. A visitation for family and friends will be held one hour prior to services. Burial will be at Elmwood Cemetery in Mason City at a later date. For additional information or to send a condolence to the family, please visit https colon slash slash www.mitchellmitchellfh.com or call area code 641-844-1234. Now we remember Adela Bailey, age 100, of Britt, Iowa, who passed away on Monday, January the 15th, 2024, at University of Wisconsin Swedish American Hospital in Rockford, Illinois. She will be taken back to Iowa for services and her final resting. Services and visitation will be held Friday, February 16, 2024, at the Faith Bible Church in Britt, Iowa. Visitation will be from 10 to 11 a.m. with the service to follow. Live streaming of the service will be available on the Faith Bible Church of Britt, Iowa Facebook page. In lieu of flowers, Adela suggested donations to the Britt Public Library, the Faith Bible Church, or the West Hancock Ambulance Service. And we remember Peter Pete John Coleman, age 84, of Urbandale, Iowa, who met Christ's Peace on February the 9th, 2024, at the Des Moines VACLC Hospice after fighting late-diagnosis lung cancer. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February the 17th, at the Ankeny Funeral Home and Crematory, located at 1510 West 1st Street in Ankeny, Iowa. Visitation will be held one hour before the service at the funeral home. A military interment ceremony will take place at Iowa Veterans Cemetery in Van Meter, Iowa, at a future date to be announced. Fond memories and expressions of sympathy may be left at www.ankinyfuneralhome.com for the Coleman family. Now it's time to move on to the sports page for in the Globe Gazette, and our first story is entitled Prezik Moves On Again. Central Springs Senior Leads Group of Five Qualifiers. It's written by Nate Thomas, and the dateline is Lake Mills. A year ago, Rory Prezik and his cousin, Preston, were the only two state qualifiers in Central Springs had for the Class 1A state wrestling tournament. This time around, Rory is headed back to Des Moines with eyes on finishing on the podium after winning the 1A Ford district title at 150 pounds on Saturday in Lake Mills. Rory defeated Northwood Kensett's Alex Tiedemann in the finals with an 8-2 decision. 
It's been an up and down season for Rory. He finished with 36 matches after his three wins in Saturday's district meet, less than he wanted because of small injuries and other things. But even with the constant stops and starts and momentum, he found a way back into the state tournament. I've had a lot of setbacks this year, but it still feels great, he said. You just have to go in confident. You can't underestimate the opponent, but you can't overestimate him. Although Preston is not competing alongside Rory, he's still had a big role in helping prepare his younger cousin for the postseason. Preston helps coach and is Rory's wrestling partner in practice. It's been a back-and-forth battle in training sessions in the last few weeks. It's a lot of getting my butt kicked in practice, Rory said with a laugh. He's been working with me a lot this year, so that's what is pushing me. It feels great to just to know that he is there for me and he wants me to do just as good as he did last year and to get on the podium and grab a medal. The goal for Rory is to finish his high school career with a medal at the state tournament. He's right there, too. Rory is ranked as one of the top 10 wrestlers in the 150-pound division heading into the state tournament, and that goal has been a driving factor in his form in the last few weeks, Coach Jay McDonough said. You always say to the kids that qualify one year and don't get what they want down there with a medal that it drives them the next year. That's where he is right now, McDonough said. He's driven. He wants that medal. We don't care if it's one through eight. That drive has been there all season as Rory has worked through all of his issues. The mental toughness that he showed the last couple of weeks of getting through his things and still coming in and working his tail off, being a good team player, hanging out with our team and really working his butt off has paid off for us, McDonough said. Last season, it was just the two Prasics representing the Panthers at State. It's a little more than a family function in 2024. This time, Rory also has four more Central Springs teammates going to Wells Fargo Arena, too. Dawson Jacobson, Liam Stockberger, Lincoln Blickenderfer, and Dylan Blickenderfer. It's unreal. We weren't expecting anything like this, Rory said, especially almost having a sixth. It was definitely a hype moment for the whole team. It shows that our coaches never give up on us no matter what. They are here to make us champs. A lot of the preparation was done in the regular season as Central Springs has seen a top talent from the top of Iowa foes like Lake Mills and Nashua Plainfield, among others. That was key on Saturday to push five wrestlers through, but it was also all the work put in outside of the competitions. We put our nose down and we worked hard, McDonough said. We didn't pay attention to anything else around us. We eliminated the distractions and went to the wrestling room with a purpose every day. Lake Mills finished second in the district and sent six wrestlers to the state tournament, highlighted by champions Lucas Oldenkamp, Stephen Brandenburg, Wyatt, Wyatt excuse me, Hannah, and Landon Price. Newman Catholic's Kale Hanning qualified after finishing second at 285 pounds. Here's your one rundown of what sports are on television today. In men's college basketball at 5.30 p.m. on FS1, it's Marquette at Butler. 6 p.m. on the ACC Network, it's Pittsburgh at Virginia. CBS Sports Network has St. John's at Providence. ESPN has North Carolina at Syracuse. And ESPN2 has Iowa State at Cincinnati. ESPNU has Texas A&M at Vanderbilt. And Peacock has Michigan at Illinois. 7 p.m. SEC uh, network has LSU at Florida. 7.30 p.m. FS1 has Georgetown at Creighton. 
8 p.m. ACC Network has Louisville at Boston College. CBS Sports Network has Colorado State at San Diego State. ESPN has Mississippi at Kentucky. ESPN2 has Oklahoma at Baylor. ESPNU has Florida State at Virginia Tech. And Peacock has Ohio State at Wisconsin. And at 10 p.m. on the CBS Sports Network, it's New Mexico at Nevada. In women's college basketball at 6 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Minnesota at Rutgers. In the NBA at 6.30 p.m. on TNT, it's Oklahoma City at Orlando. And 9 p.m. TNT has Sacramento at Phoenix. One last story, college women's basketball, Huskers upset by Huskers upset Hawkeyes, Clark eight points shy of record. This is written by Eric Olson, Dateline Lincoln, Nebraska. Nebraska and Iowa fans alike came to Pinnacle Bank Arena hoping to see Caitlin Clark set the NCAA women's career scoring record on a nationally televised celebration of women's basketball. What they, saw, what they saw instead Sunday was a huge performance by the Cornhuskers who rallied from a 14-point fourth-quarter deficit to beat number 2 Iowa 82-79. to Nebraska earned its first win over a top-25 opponent this season and its first ever over Iowa in 10 tries. A student-led court storming punctuated the afternoon. Jazz Shelley's three-pointer with 30 seconds left gave Nebraska its first league, and she made all four of her free throws to close out the Hawkeyes. On a day like today, I'm just so proud to be the head coach at Nebraska and proud of this team and the way they showed great response throughout the fourth quarter and found a way to win, Cornhuskers coach Amy Williams said. Clark, who finished with 31 points, was held scoreless over the final 12 and a half minutes. She missed her last six shots, including a three just ahead of the buzzer. Just didn't execute down the stretch. It stinks, Clark said. Clark now has 3,520 career points and needs eight more to pass Kelsey Plum's record of 3,527 for Washington from 2013 to 2017. She likely will break the record Thursday at home against Michigan. Hannah Stolke's layup with 9 minutes 22 seconds left gave the Hawkeyes its biggest lead at 71 to 57. The Hawkeyes were outscored 25 to 8 to end the game. Shelley, who finished with 23 points including 5 three-pointers, gave the Huskers the lead when she launched a 3 from the right corner as the shot clock was winding down. Clark's three-point try nicked off the front of the rim before Shelley made two free throws with 18.1 seconds left. Stulke scored to make it 80-79, to but Shelley hit two more shots from the stripe, and Clark and Kate Martin missed threes at the end. Everybody's going to give us their best shot. If you don't know that at this point of the season, Clark said. The crowd was split evenly between Nebraska and Iowa fans. Let's go Hawks chance started before tip-off. Coming out and seeing more yellow at first kind of scary when you're at home, Nebraska's Alexis Markowski said. Husker fans really showed out. We took it as a challenge. We knew we were the underdogs in the situation. We gave it our all and came out on top. Nebraska kept it close in the first half and trailed by just 39-35 at the break. Shelley made three three three-pointers, including two straight late in the second quarter to keep Iowa from pulling away. Clark had 17 points in the first half, but her contributions on defense and as a facilitator were just as important. She ratcheted up her scoring in the third quarter, accounting for 14 points. Nebraska switched Shelley and two other players on Clark defensively. The Huskers also double-teamed her up high and then went to a gimmick defense, the box and one, to shut her down late. 
It's something we prepare for throughout the season, but we hadn't necessarily prepared for it the last couple of practices, Clark said. We should have been ready for it. An upset Iowa coach, Lisa Bluter, standing outside the interview room caused a brief pause in the post-game news conference with Nebraska players. She was angry because Nebraska players went into the interview room ahead of Iowa. Bluter took questions in an adjacent hallway while Caitlin Clark and Kate Martin addressed the media. We got a flight to catch, Bluter yelled, prompting Nebraska's Alexis Markowski to stop talking and look over her shoulder. This is expletive. This is not Big Ten protocol. She fired one more salvo, an apparent complaint about game presentation in the arena. They play music while you shoot free throws. Nebraska, the game was the first women's basketball game sellout in program history. A few sellers on the secondary markets were asking as much as $2,000 for a seat in the lower bowl. The highest seats on one end of the arena were unfilled, though. The Hawkeyes dropped out of a tie for first place in the Big Ten with Ohio State. Nebraska goes to Ohio State on Wednesday, and Iowa hosts Michigan on Thursday. You're listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now it's time to turn to articles from today's Fort Dodge Messenger. And we'll start with Fort Dodge Council Advances Franchise Fee. It's written by Bill Shea. Utility franchise fees that would pay for hiring eight additional police officers were approved on second reading Monday evening by the Fort Dodge City Council. Councilwoman Megan Secor was absent from the otherwise unanimous votes. One more affirmative vote of the council is required in order for the fees to go into effect. I keep hearing people say I agree that we need to add more officers, but not this way, Councilman Cameron Nelson said. This is the only way to make it happen. I don't like doing this, but what else can we do, Councilman Kim Allstott said. Former Webster County Supervisor Clark Fletcher told the council that it is shuffling, shifting the burden by adopting franchise fees. It's a use tax, he said. That's all it is. I trust that it will be spread equally between commercial and residential customers. But he added that the fees would place a greater burden on those in a less fortunate position. Before the council voted, two police officers, Lieutenant Zach Stanley and Sergeant Matt Webb, told the elected officials about the burden the current 40-member police force shoulders. The fees are 5% levies that would be added to the electricity and gas bills of mid-American energy customers. It is anticipated that they will generate $2.4 million annually. Some of that money would be used to hire eight officers to beef up the 40-member police force. Revenue from the franchise fee would also enable the city to reduce that part of the property tax rate that goes toward paying off general obligation bond debt. Currently, that specific levy is $4.50 per $1,000 of taxable value. If the fees win final approval, that would be reduced by $1 per $1,000 of taxable value. The rest of the franchise fee revenue would be used to help support the Carl King Municipal Band, Citizens Central, and infrastructure projects. Allstott and Councilman Dave Flattery both talked about how changes in state law have impacted the revenue the city needs to provide services. 
According to Flattery, the city is facing a $450,000 general fund deficit in the 2024-2025 budget because of changes in Iowa code. If we don't do something to increase revenue, there are no other places to cut than public safety, he said. Allstadt said the governor and legislature adjusted the rollback figures, which determine how much of a property's value is taxable. He said the state promised to give local communities money to replace what they lost due to that change. But now, he said, the state is reducing that backfill money. When it came time to act on the fees Monday, there were two separate 6-0 to zero votes, one for the natural gas franchise fee and one for the electric franchise fee. If the franchise fees are implemented, the local option sales tax now assessed on gas and electric bills will be removed. The result would be a net increase of $3.18 per month on average residential gas bills. There would also be a $3.68 per month net increase on average residential electric bills. In other council news, council moves to support Nestle Purina. Proposed expansion would create 50 new jobs. The Fort Dodge City Council on Monday committed $1.6 million to support an expansion of the Nestle Purina pet care plant. The council committed that supervisor or that sum over 10 years of support the company's to, to support the company's application for state assistance. That application is expected to come before the Iowa Economic Development Authority on Friday. The plant at 2400 Fifth Avenue South makes canned cat food. The proposed expansion would be a $200 million investment that would increase 50 new jobs, according to a report to the council from Vicki Reek, the city's community and economic development manager. The city's $1.6 million contribution would come from tax increment financing, which occurs when increased property tax revenue from a designated area is set aside to be reinvested in that area. There was no discussion of the issue during Monday's council meeting. Councilwoman Megan Secor was absent from the otherwise unanimous vote. Our next article is entitled, Virtual Program Offers Tips for Parenting. Raising children can be rewarding, but it also can be challenging for families, says Melissa Rader, a human sciences specialist with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach. To better handle the challenges, parents and caregivers are invited to the next virtual sessions of ACT, Raising Safe Kids. The workshops teach positive parenting skills to parents and caregivers of children from birth to age 8. The series of lessons is sponsored by ISU Extension and Outreach. New virtual sessions began January, begin February 27th and March 1st. We are excited to bring this educational offering virtually to families, said Rader, who specializes in family life issues. It is what ISU Extension and Outreach has done for over 100 years, responded to the needs of Iowans where they are. In the series of lessons, parents and caregivers will gain strategies for dealing with children's difficult behaviors and developmentally appropriate responses, controlling their own anger, helping children control their anger, teaching children how to resolve conflicts without using violence, using positive discipline methods that fit a child's age, reducing the influence of media violence on children, Participants will receive the ACT Parent Handbook, which includes sets of fact sheets with information on children's typical problem behaviors and outlines basic child development information. 
The handbook also includes handouts on anger management, positive discipline, media literacy, and positive ways to resolve conflict. The program is based on research that indicates that effective parenting is a critical factor to prevent youth behavior problems, said Rader. Parents, foster parents, grandparents, primary caregivers, and others in a parenting role are encouraged to attend the upcoming series scheduled for Thursday evenings starting February 27th or Friday afternoons starting March 1st. Iowa Foster Parent Credit is available. Professionals working with families are encouraged to share this information with clients. The Act Raising Kids Safe series consists of nine two-hour sessions. Cost is $40 per family. For a financial scholarship, contact Melissa Rader at mrader at iastate.edu or area code 515-708-0622. For more information or to register, visit www.extension.iastate.edu slash human sciences slash act. Our final story from the front page of The Messenger is entitled St. Edmund to host Kindergarten Roundup, New Families Info Night. Event set for February 21st and it's written by Dana Becker. St. Edmund Catholic Schools will host Kindergarten Roundup and New Families Information Night this month. The event is scheduled to take place from 4.30 to 6 p.m. on February the 21st inside the Varsity Gym located at 2321 6th Avenue North. Parents who choose to enroll their eligible children in an accredited non-public school will receive an amount equal to the per-pupil funding allocated to public school districts for the same budget school year. Funds will be deposited into an education savings account to be used for tuition, fees, and other qualified education expenses as specified in the legislation. Year 2 eligibility, 2024-2025 school year, includes all children entering transitional kindergarten and kindergarten, all students enrolled in a public school or a student enrolled in an accredited non-public school with a household income at or below 400% of the 2024 federal poverty guidelines, which was updated in January. Now we turn to today's obituaries and we remember Bernadette L. Howie of Lincoln, Nebraska resident who passed away after a six-year battle with cancer on February 7th, 2024 at the Monarch Hospice House. She was 80 years old. In lieu of flowers, memorials can be made to Pink Sisters. Condolences can be left at bmlfh.com. Arrangements by Boothrus Mazer and Love Funeral Home. Next, we remember Chris Clark of Ida Grove, age 57, who passed away January 29, 2024. Services were held February 6, 2024. Condolences may be sent online at www.kristensenvanhouten.com, and that's C H R I S T E N S E N. V-A-N-H-O-U-T-E-N dot com. And finally, Betty Monson of Gilmore City. Memorial services Thursday, February 15th at 1 p.m. at Faith United Methodist Church in Gilmore City. www.lensfuneralhome.com Now we're on to sports and Fort Dodge girls qualify for state. Dodgers come up clutch when it matters most. This is written by Chris Johnson. 
Fort Dodge Girls Bowling head coach Nick Vinson didn't know how to put into words how he felt after Monday's state qualifying meet. The Dodgers entered the meet as the 17th best team in Class 2A, but after the competition at Game Day Lanes, there are only they are only one of eight left standing. Fort Dodge finished second in the Urbandale host competition with their best score of the season at 2,498. Independence, 2,590, won the title. We met Sunday and talked about how nobody really expected us to do anything outside of our own program, Vincent said. We just had to go out and send the message. We were the fifth best team in the district on paper, so we were an underdog. I thought we had the potentials to do it. We just had to come together to make it happen. The girls did an outstanding job. This is the fifth time in six years that the Dodger girls have qualified for the state tournament. After four straight seasons followed by a one-year hiatus in 2023, the Dodgers put together a strong run to make a return. There were no expectations, really, Vincent said. I just told them to do what they know how to do and not worry about it. After the first five games, we were in second. After ten, we were in first and up on Independence and about 160 on North Scott. I didn't tell them where we were. We just kept bowling. Independence caught us, but the girls just kept going and focusing on themselves. This event consisted of 15 Baker's games, where five players bowl frames in each stanza. The Dodgers started with the best score in the opener with a 175. Fort Dodge had the best score in four of the first 10 games. The Dodgers' highest score was a 198. They also had a 195 and a 194. FDSH averaged 166.5. Competing for the Dodgers was Callie Graves, Samantha Anderson, Samantha Welter, Sol Berkeley, Gabby Flores, and Amira Lumsden. Lumsden. Everyone contributed, Vincent said. I feel like this is the best that Gabby has bowled. She struck a lot and in Baker's, which was huge help. The girls really step up across the board. After Fort Dodge struggled in the IAC Northern Division meet last week, Vincent was impressed with the way the squad rallied and responded. We registered some in the conference meet, so, or excuse me, we regressed some in the conference meet, so when we went back to practice, I challenged them, Vincent said. We talked about how team and individual differ. After last week, it would have been easy to draw the conclusion that we didn't have a chance. To the girls' credit, they reversed that narrative. The Dodgers also competed in the individual qualifier on Monday where the top eight individuals advanced to state. Lumsden had the top individual score for the Dodgers with a 496. Flores at 488 was next, followed by Berkeley at 463 and Graves at 441. The final spot was claimed by Independence's Brooklyn Tudor at 516. Fort Dodge will compete in the state meet February 21st at Cadillac Lanes. In boys high school basketball, SE Boys Coast to 1A opener. This is written by Dana Becker. Adolf Kolkendorfer loves to, te- to preach defense and rebounding. On Monday night, his St. Edmund boys took those two areas to heart. The Gales used a 23-2 run to start the second half in taking care of GTRA inside the SEHS gym to advance in Class 1A district play 62-31. Up next for St. Edmund will be Newell Fonda in Newell on Thursday night. The Mustangs topped Trinity Christian 82-53. 
Grant Gallus scored 11 points off the bench, all in the third quarter, to spearhead the rally and lead the Gales. Hunter Horn and Jacob Koopman each had 10 points, with Koopman adding 10 rebounds and Horn 8 rebounds, 4 assists, 3 blocks, and a steal. It was a great defensive effort by the guys, Kuchendorfer said. We watched GTRA play last week, and they could really shoot it when you give them space. I thought we switched and helped, didn't allow them to get open looks, and really crashed the boards. Grant had a big night. Jacob was all over the glass, and Hunter did a great job against Sullivan Hall. Hall, a six foot ten sophomore, was held to just four points as he did not attempt a shot from the field until there was two minutes left in the first half. Casey Huff had eight points, ten below his average, coming in for the Titans. When they played Harris Lake Park last week, they got down 13-0 to start and come came all the way back to win, Kuchendorfer said. The Hoof kid can really shoot, and they've got some other kids that can get hot. We just didn't let up right from the start with our intensity on defense. St. Edmund never trailed in this one, racing out to a 7-0 lead on bucket from Koopman, a three-point a three by senior J.T. Luffsweiler, and a basket by McElroy. Horn, the leading scorer for the team coming in, recorded assists on two of those. An 8-0 run near the end of the second of the quarter made it 17-4 in favor of the Gales as they led as the lead grew to as many as 33 when the Gales sank a three-pointer to end the third. We talked at half about coming out and putting the game out of reach, Kuckendorfer said. We felt good about the lead we had at the break, but you never want to let a team hang around. St. Edmund and Newell Fonda last met in 2019 with the Mustangs posting an 84-65 victory. They have won three straight in the series, which includes three postseason meetings. In those games, the Gales have won two of three. Under the area roundup heading, MNW boys handle Green County. The Manson Northwest Webster boys downed Green County here Monday night in Class 2A district opener, 60-42. Logan Moline scored 29 points with Keelan Koval adding 16. Brock Patzner had 9 for the Cougars. Manson Northwest Webster heads to East Sac County on Thursday and Eagle Grove boys get by Southeast Valley. The Eagle Grove boys posted a 67-56 victory over Southeast Valley to advance Monday night. Jackson Morris led the Eagles with 26 points. Tyrion Franklin added 19, and Drake Canavan 16 in the win. Eagle Grove will take on South Central Calhoun in Rockwell City on Thursday in a Class 2A District 6 quarterfinal. Today's sports on TV, 5.30 p.m. on FS1, it's Marquette at Butler. 6 p.m. on CBSSN, it's St. John's at Providence. Also at 6 on ESPN, North Carolina at Syracuse. And on ESPN2 at 6 p.m., Iowa State at Cincinnati. And ESPNU at 6 p.m. has Texas A&M at Vanderbilt. 7.30 p.m. on FS1, it's Georgetown at Creighton. 8 p.m. on CBSN, it's... Colorado State at San Diego State. ESPN 8 p.m. has Mississippi at Kentucky. ESPN 2 at 8 p.m. has Oklahoma at Baylor. ESPN U at 8 p.m. has Florida State at Virginia Tech. And at 10 p.m. on CBS SN, it's New Mexico at Nevada. On TNT at 6.30 p.m., the Oklahoma City Thunder 
I believe, take on the Orlando Magic. And at 9 p.m. on TNT, the Sacramento Kings versus the Phoenix Suns. In high school wrestling, Meyer, 1A area, ready for their state tourney shot. For the second consecutive year, Sam Meyer will get a shot at competing against the best wrestlers in the state. The Seda Edmund Jr. secured a spot in the Class 1A tournament beginning here Wednesday inside Wells Fargo Arena. Meyer will take on Pleasantville senior Caleb Cook at 138 pounds. The opening 1A session is scheduled to begin at 6 p.m. Coming off a strong finish at the South Central Calhoun duels, Meyer earned his state bid by placing second at districts. He brings a record of 27 wins, 13 losses into the week. I'm feeling like my abilities have improved greatly over the season thanks to my coaches, Meyer said. There's been lots of hard work to get to the tournament, so it's nice to be back. But making it to Wells Fargo is only half the battle. I'm shooting for a title, but regardless, I'm just ready to scrap. Last year, Meyer went 19 wins, 9 losses, including a 1-2 and two mark at state. He earned a thrilling 14-12 decision to keep his quest for a medal alive in the consolation round before a loss ended his season. Meyer was fourth during the regular season at the North Central Conference Tournament as he also placed second at the Cougar Invitational and was third at the Doug Wood Invitational. Cook is 41-5 coming into the meet and also qualified last year for state. He went 3-2 scoring an opening round decision before falling in the consolation fourth round to end the year 47-7. Returning state runner-up Jace Nelson-Brown leads a five-pack of E-Hawk qualifiers. That's from Emmitsburg. Nelson-Brown, Justin Wirtz, and Ryan Wirtz each captured district titles, while Nick Saxton and Gage Jorgensen were runners-up. After receiving a bye, the third seed Nelson-Brown will face either Jordan Martin-England from Lenox or Will Atchison from Iowa City-Regina. A senior, Nelson Brown, went 35-4 and this year. Justin Wirtz also received a bye at 165 as the 38-2 junior awaits either Kyle Kubishek of South Winnesheek or Jordan Orr from West Montana, Monona Whiting. Ryan Wirtz has the same starting path as the sophomore, received a bye at 190 after going 35-6. and six. He gets the winner of Tate Peach from Iowa Valley and Austin McMahon at North Mahaska. Saxton, a 33-13 sophomore, battles with Emmett Fleshman from Alburnett, a senior who went 47 and eight at 2.15, Jorgensen scored a bye and will carry a 25-4 mark into a meeting with either Jonah Ryling of Lisbon or Aiden McFadden of Baxter. Along with Nelson Brown's silver, Jorgensen was eight la- eighth last year while both Justin and Ryan Wirtz qualified. For South Central Calhoun, Brock Natras and Nylon Gulbranson will be in action for the Titans. West Bend Mallard has Mason Knapp, who claimed a district crown, with Logan Grimm advancing as a runner-up for the Wolverines. East Sac County, both Braden Burns and Charlie Vite secured district titles for the Raiders to punch return state appearances. And for Pocahontas area, William Lawson will be the lone representative to compete for the Indians this coming week. One final note, Super Bowl shatters record. The longest Super Bowl game will also go down as the most watched program in television history. 
According to Nielsen and Adobe Analytics, Kansas City's 25-22 overtime victory over San Francisco on Sunday night averaged 123.4 million viewers across television and streaming platforms. That shattered last year's mark of 115.1 million for Kansas City's victory over Philadelphia and is a 7% increase. The game was televised by CBS, Nickelodeon, and Univision and streamed on Paramount+. Nielsen also said a record 202.4 million watched at least part of the game across all networks, a 10% jump. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>